Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Have a nice, big stretch. Breathe in. Now, hold that breath and exhale fully. Inhale, hold it, and exhale fully. Last time, Mr. Brocklehurst visited Lowood for the first time since Jane's arrival. He observed and discussed any superfluity with Miss Temple and lectured the students before Jane absentmindedly dropped her slate. As his eye caught sight of her, he ordered Jane to be seated on a high stool in front of the school. He called her out as a liar by Mrs. Reed's accusation and made an example of her. Later that day, Helen Burns found Jane weeping on her own, mortified. Then Miss Temple approached and asked the two girls to join her in her room. She invited them to have tea and discussed the incident with Mr. Brocklehurst with Jane. Jane explained her childhood with Mrs. Reed and defended her own character. Miss Temple agreed to write to the apothecary Mr. Lloyd to corroborate Jane's story in order to officially clear her name. He returned her letter promptly, and a week later, Miss Temple announced her findings to the whole school, proclaiming Jane innocent of any wrongdoing. From then on, Jane focused on school and determined to be the best pupil she could be. We pick up tonight with months passing at Lowood School, so just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre.
Chapter 9 But the privations, or rather the hardships of Lowood lessened. Spring drew on. She was indeed already come. The frosts of winter ceased. Its snows were melted. Its cutting winds ameliorated. My wretched feet, flayed and swollen to lameness by the sharp air of January, began to heal and subside under the gentler breathings of April. The nights and mornings, no longer by their Canadian temperature, froze the very blood in our veins. We could now endure the play hour passed in the garden. Sometimes on a sunny day, it began even to be pleasant and genial, and a greenness grew over those brown beds, which, freshening daily, suggested the thought that hope traversed them at night and left each morning brighter traces of her steps. Flowers peeped out amongst the leaves, snowdrops, crocuses, purple auriculas, and golden-eyed pansies. On Thursday afternoons, half-holidays, we now took walks and found still sweeter flowers opening by the wayside under the hedges. I discovered, too, that a great pleasure, an enjoyment which the horizon only bounded, lay all outside the high and spike-guarded walls of our garden. This pleasure consisted in prospect of noble summits girdling a great hill hollow, rich in verdure and shadow, in a bright Back, full of dark stones and sparkling eddies. How different this scene had looked when I viewed it laid out beneath the iron sky of winter, stiffened in frost, shrouded with snow, when mists as chill as death wandered into the impulse of east wings along those purple peaks and rolled down till they blended with the frozen fog of the beck. That beck itself was then a torrent, turbid and curbless. It tore asunder the wood and sent a raving sound through the air often thickened with wild rain or whirling sleet, and for the forest on its banks that showed only ranks of skeletons. April advanced to May, a bright, serene May it was. Days of blue sky, placid sunshine, and soft, western or southern gales filled up its duration, and now 
vegetation matured with vigor. Lowood shook loose its tresses. It all became green, all flowering. Its grey elm, ash, and oak skeletons were restored to majestic life. Woodland plants sprang up profusely in its recesses. Unnumbered varieties of moss filled its hollows, and it made a strange ground sunshine out of the wealth of its wild, primrose plants. I have seen their pale, gold gleam in overshadowed spots like scatterings of the sweetest luster. All this I enjoyed often and fully, free, unwashed, and almost alone. For this unwanted liberty and pleasure there was a cause to which it now becomes my task to advert. Have I not described a pleasant sight for a dwelling when I speak of it as bosomed in hill and wood, and rising from the verge of a stream, assuredly pleasant enough, but whether healthy or not is another question. That forest down where Lowood lay was the cradle of fog, and fog-bred pestilence, which quickening with the quickening spring, crept into the orphan asylum, breathed typhus through its crowded schoolroom and dormitory, and, ere May arrived, transformed the seminary into a hospital. Semi-starvation and neglected colds had predisposed most of the pupils to receive infection. Forty-five out of the eighty girls lay ill at one time. Classes were broken up. Rules relaxed. The few who continued well were allowed almost unlimited license because the medical attendant insisted on the necessity of frequent exercise to keep them in health, and had it been otherwise, no one had leisure to watch or restrain them. Miss Temple's whole attention was absorbed by the patients. She lived in the sick room, never quitting it except to snatch a few hours' rest at night. The teachers were fully occupied with packing up and making other necessary preparations for the departure of those girls who were fortunate enough to have friends and relations able and willing to remove them from the seat of contagion. Many, already smitten, went home only to die. Some died at the school and were buried quietly and quickly, the nature of the malady forbidding delay. 
While disease had thus become an inhabitant of Lowood, and death its frequent visitor, while there was gloom and fear within its walls, while its rooms and passages streamed with hospital smells, the drug and the pastel striving vainly to overcome the effluvia of mortality, that bright May shone unclouded over the bold hills and beautiful woodland out of doors. Its garden, too, glowed with flowers. Hollyhocks had sprung up as tall as trees. Lilies had opened. Tulips and roses were in bloom. The borders of the little beds were bright with pink thrift and crimson double daisies. The sweet briars gave out morning and evening their scent of spice and apples. And these fragrant treasures were all useless for most of the inmates of Lowood, except to furnish now and then a handful of herbs and blossoms to put in a coffin. But I, and the rest who continued well, enjoyed fully the beauties of the scene and season. They let us ramble in the wood from morning till night. We did what we liked, went where we liked. We lived better, too. Mr. Brocklehurst and his family never came near Lowood now. Household matters were not scrutinized into. The cross housekeeper was gone, driven away by the fear of infection. Her successor, who had been matron at the Lowton dispensary, unused to the ways of her new abode, provided with comparative liberality. Besides, there were fewer to feed. The sick could eat little. Our breakfast basins were better filled. When there was no time to prepare a regular dinner, which often happened, she would give us a large piece of cold pie or a thick slice of bread and cheese, and this we carried away with us into the wood where we each chose the spot we liked best and dined sumptuously. My favorite scene was a smooth and broad stone rising white and dry from the very middle of the beck and only to be got at by wading through the water, a feat I accomplished barefoot. The stone was just broad enough to accommodate, comfortably, another girl and me. At that time, my chosen comrade, one Marianne Wilson, a shrewd, observant personage, whose society I took pleasure in, partly because she was witty and original, and partly because she had a manner which set me at ease. Some years older than I, 
she knew more of the world and could tell me many things I liked to hear. With her, my curiosity found gratification. To my faults also, she gave ample indulgence, never imposing curb or rein on anything I said. She had a turn for narrative, I for analysis. She liked to inform, I to question. So we got on swimmingly together, deriving much entertainment, if not much improvement from our mutual discourse. And where, meantime, was Helen Burns? Why I did not spend these sweet days of liberty with her? Had I forgotten her? Or was I so worthless as to have grown tired of her pure society? Surely the Marianne Wilson I have mentioned was inferior to my first acquaintance. She could only tell amusing stories and reciprocate any racy and pungent gossip I chose to indulge in. While, if I have spoken the truth of Helen, she was qualified to give those who enjoyed the privilege of her converse a taste of far higher things. I knew and felt this, and although I am a defective being with many faults and few redeeming points, I never tired of Helen Burns, nor ever ceased to cherish for her a sentiment of attachment, a strong, tender, and respectful as any that ever animated my heart. How could it be otherwise, when Helen, at all times and under all circumstances, evinced for me a quiet and faithful friendship, which ill-humor never soured, nor irritation ever troubled? But Helen was ill at present. For some weeks she had been removed from my sight to I knew not what room upstairs. She was not, I was told, in the hospital portion of the house with the fever patients, for her complaint was consumption, not typhus, and my consumption, I, in my ignorance, understood something mild which time and care would be sure to alleviate. I was confirmed in this idea by the fact of her once or twice coming downstairs on very warm, sunny afternoons and being taken by Miss Temple into the garden. But on these occasions, I was not allowed to go and speak to her. I only saw her from the schoolroom window and then not distinctly, for she was much wrapped up and sat at a distance under the veranda. One evening in the beginning of June, I had stayed out very late with Marianne in the wood. We had, as usual, separated ourselves from the others and had wandered far, so far that we lost our way 
and had to ask it at a lonely cottage where a man and woman lived who looked after a herd of wild swine that fed on the mast in the wood. When we got back, it was after moonrise. A pony, which we knew to be the surgeon's, was standing at the garden door. Mary Ann remarked that she had supposed someone must be very ill, as Mr. Bates had been sent for at that time of the evening. She went into the house. I stayed behind a few minutes to plant in my garden a handful of roots I had dug up in the forest and which I feared would wither if I left them till morning. This done, I lingered yet a little longer. The flowers smelt so sweet as the dew fell. It was such a pleasant evening, so serene so warm. The still glowing west promised so fairly another fine day on the morrow. The moon rose with such majesty in the grave east. I was noting these things and enjoying them as a child might when it entered my mind as it had never done before. How sad to be lying now on a sickbed and to be in danger of dying. This world is pleasant. It would be dreary to be called from it and have to go who knows where. And then my mind made its first earnest effort to comprehend what had been infused into it concerning heaven and hell. And for the first time it recoiled, baffled, and for the first time, glancing behind on each side and before it, saw all around an unfathomed gulf, it fell to the one point where it stood, the present. All the rest was formless cloud and vacant depth, and it shuddered as the thought of tottering and plunging amid that chaos. While pondering this new idea, I heard the front door open. Mr. Bates came out, and with him was a nurse. After she had seen him mount his horse and depart, she was about to close the door, but I ran up to her. How has Helen Burns... I asked. Very poorly, was the answer. Is it her Mr. Bates had been to see, I continued. Yes, said she. And what does he say about her? He says she'll not be here long. This phrase, uttered in my hearing yesterday, would have only conveyed the notion that she was about to be removed to Northumberland in her own home should not have suspected that it meant she was dying, but I knew instantly now. It opened clear on my comprehension that Helen Burns was numbering her last days in this world and that she was going to be taken to the region of spirits. 
if such a region there were. I experienced a shock of horror, then a strong thrill of grief, then a desire, a necessity to see her, and I asked in what room she lay. She's in Miss Temple's room, said the nurse. May I go up to speak to her? I asked. Oh no, child, it is not likely. Now it is time for you to come in. You'll catch the fever if you stop out when the dew is falling. The nurse closed the front door. I went in by the side entrance, which led me to the schoolroom. I was just in time. It was nine o'clock, and Miss Miller was calling the pupils to go to bed. It might be two hours later, probably near eleven, when I, not having been able to fall asleep, and deeming from the perfect silence of the dormitory that my companions were all wrapped in profound repose, rose softly, put on my frock over my nightdress, and without shoes, crept from the apartment and set off in the quest of Miss Temple's room. It was quite at the other end of the house, but I knew my way, and the light of the unclouded summer moon entering here and there at passage windows enabled me to find it without difficulty. An odour of camphor and burnt vinegar warned me when I came near the fever room, and I passed its door quickly, fearful the nurse who sat up all night should hear me. I dreaded being discovered and sent back, for I must see Helen. I must embrace her before she died. I must give her one last kiss, exchange with her, one last word. Having descended a staircase, traversed a portion of the house below, and succeeded in opening and shutting, without noise, two doors, I reached another flight of steps. These I mounted, and then, just opposite to me, was Miss Temple's room. A light shone through the keyhole and from under the door. A profound stillness pervaded the vicinity. Coming near, I found the door slightly ajar, probably to admit some fresh air into the close abode of sickness. Indisposed to hesitate and full of impatient impulses, soul and senses quivering with keen throes, I put it back and looked in. My eye sought Helen and feared to find death. Close by Miss Temple's bed and half covered with its white curtains, there stood a little crib. I saw the outline of a form under the clothes. The face was hidden by the hangings. The nurse I had spoken to in the garden 
sat in an easy chair asleep. An unsnuffed candle burned dimly on the table. Miss Temple was not to be seen. I knew afterwards that she had been called to a delirious patient in the fever room. I advanced, then paused by the crib side. My hand was on the curtain, but I preferred speaking before I withdrew it. I still recoiled at the dread of seeing a corpse. Helen, I whispered softly. Are you awake? She stirred herself, put back the curtain, and I saw her face, pale, wasted, but quite composed. She looked so little changed that my fear was instantly dissipated. Can it be you, Jane? She asked in her own gentle voice. Oh, I thought, she's not going to die. They are mistaken. She could not speak and look so calmly if she were. I got onto her crib and kissed her. Her forehead was cold, and her cheek, both cold and thin, and so were her hand and wrist. But she smiled as of old. Why are you come here, Jane? It's past eleven o'clock. I heard it strike some minutes since. I came to see you, Helen. I heard you were very ill, and I could not sleep till I had spoken to you. You came to bid me goodbye then, she said. You were just in time, probably. Are you going somewhere, Helen? Are you going home? I asked. Yes, to my long home, my last home, she replied. Oh, no, Helen, I stopped, distressed. While I tried to devour my tears, a fit of coughing seized Helen. It did not, however, wake the nurse. When it was over, She lay some minutes, exhausted. Then she whispered, Jane, your little feet are bare. Lie down and cover yourself with my quilt. I did so. She put her arm over me, and I nestled close to her. After a long silence, she resumed, still whispering, I am very happy, Jane, and when you hear that I am dead, you must be sure and not grieve. There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day, and the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle, gradual. My mind is at rest. I leave no one to regret me much. I have only a father, and he is lately married, will not miss me. By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. I had not qualities or talents to make my way very well in the world. I should have been continually at fault. 
But where are you going to, Helen? Can you see? Do you know? I ask. I believe. I have faith. I am going to God, said she. Where is God? What is God? I replied. My maker and yours, who will never destroy what he created. I rely implicitly on his power and confide wholly in his goodness. I count the hours till that eventful one arrives, which shall restore me to him, reveal him to me. You are sure then, Helen, that there is such a place as heaven, and that our souls can get to it when we die. I am sure there is a future state, said she. I believe God is good. I can resign my immortal part to him without any misgiving. God is my father. God is my friend. I love him. I believe he loves me. Shall I see you again, Helen, when I die? I asked. You will come to the same region of happiness, be received by the same mighty, universal parent, no doubt, dear Jane. Again, I questioned, but this time only in thought. Where is that region? Does it exist? And I clasped my arms closer round Helen. She seemed dearer to me than ever. I felt as if I could not let her go. I lay with my face hidden on her neck. Presently, she said in the sweetest tone, How comfortable I am. That last fit of coughing has tired me a little. I feel as if I could sleep. But don't leave me, Jane. I like to have you near me. I'll stay with you, dear Helen. No one shall take me away. Are you warm, darling? She asked. Yes, I replied. Good night, Jane. Night, Helen. She kissed me and I her, and we both soon slumbered. When I awoke, it was day. An unusual movement roused me. I looked up. I was in somebody's arms. The nurse held me. She was carrying me through the passage back to the dormitory. I was not reprimanded for leaving my bed. People had something else to think about. No explanation was afforded then to my many questions, but a day or two afterwards, I learned that Miss Temple, on returning to her own room at dawn, had found me laid in the little crib, my face against Helen Burns's shoulder my arms round her neck. I was asleep, and Helen was dead. 
Her grave is in Brocklebridge Churchyard. For 15 years after her death, it was only covered by a grassy mound, but now a grey marble tablet marks the spot inscribed with her name and the words, Resurgum. Chapter 10 Hitherto I have recorded in detail the events of my insignificant existence. To the first ten years of my life, I have given almost as many chapters. But this is not to be a regular autobiography. I am only bound to invoke memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Therefore, I now pass a space of eight years almost in silence. A few lines only are necessary to keep up the links of connection. When the typhus fever had fulfilled its mission of devastation at Lowood, it gradually disappeared from thence but not till its virulence and the number of its victims had drawn public attention on the school. Inquiry was made into the origin of the scourge, and by degrees, various facts came out which excited public indignation in a high degree. The unhealthy nature of the site, the quantity, and quality of the children's food, the brackish, fetid water used in its preparation, the pupils' wretched clothing and accommodations. All these things were discovered, and the discovery produced as a result, mortifying to Mr. Brocklehurst, but beneficial to the institution. Several wealthy, and benevolent individuals in the county subscribed largely for the erection of a more convenient building in a better situation. New regulations were made, improvements in diet and clothing introduced, the funds of the school were entrusted to the management of a committee. Mr. Brocklehurst, who, from his wealth, and family connections could not be overlooked, still retained the post of treasurer, but he was aided in the discharge of his duties by gentlemen of rather more enlarged and sympathizing minds. His office of inspector, too, was shared by those who knew how to combine reason with strictness, comfort, with economy, compassion with uprightness. The school, thus improved, became a truly useful and noble institution. I remained an inmate of its walls after its regeneration for eight years, six as a pupil and two as a teacher, and in both capacities I bear my testimony to its value and importance. During these eight years, my life was uniform 
but not unhappy because it was not inactive. I had the means of an excellent education placed within my reach, a fondness for some of my studies, and a desire to excel in all, together with a great delight in pleasing my teachers, especially such as I loved, urged me on. I availed myself fully of the advantages offered me. In time, I rose to be the first girl of the first class. Then I was invested with the office of teacher, which I discharged with zeal for two years. But at the end of that time, I altered. Miss Temple, through all changes, had thus far continued superintendent of the seminary. To her instruction, I owed the best part of my acquirements. Her friendship and society had been my continual solace. She had stood me in the stead of mother, governess, and latterly, companion. At this period, she married removed with her husband, a clergyman, an excellent man, almost worthy of such a wife, to a distant county, and consequently was lost to me. From the day she left, I was no longer the same. With her was gone every settled feeling, every association that had made Lowood in some degree a home to me. I had imbibed from her something of her nature and much of her habits, more harmonious thoughts. What seemed better regulated feelings had become the inmates of my mind. I had given in allegiance to duty and order. I was quiet. I believed I was content, to the eyes of others, usually even to my own, I appeared a disciplined and subdued character. But destiny, in the shape of the Reverend Mr. Nasmith, came between me and Miss Temple. I saw her in her travelling dress step into a post-chaise shortly after the marriage ceremony. I watched the shades mount the hill and disappear beyond its brow, and then retired to my own room, and there spent in solitude the greatest part of the half-holiday granted in honour of the occasion. I walked about the chamber most of the time, I imagined myself only to be regretting my loss and thinking how to repair it, but when my reflections were concluded and I looked up and found that the afternoon was gone and evening far advanced, another discovery dawned on me, namely that in the interval I had undergone a transforming process that my mind had put off all it had borrowed of Miss Temple, or rather that she had taken with her 
the serene atmosphere I had been breathing in her vicinity, and now I was left in my natural element and beginning to feel the stirring of old emotions. It did not seem as if a prop were withdrawn, but rather as if a motive were gone. It was not the power to be tranquil which had failed me, but the reason for tranquility was no more. My world had for some years been in Lowood. My experience had been of its rules and systems. Now I remembered that the real world was wide and that a varied field of hopes and fears, of sensations and excitements, awaited those who had the courage to go forth into its expanse, to seek real knowledge of life amidst its perils. I went to my window, opened it, and looked out. There were the two wings of the building. There was the garden. There were the skirts of Lowood. There was the hilly horizon. My eye passed all other objects to rest on those most remote, the blue peaks. It was those I longed to surmount, all within their boundary of rock and he seemed prison ground, exile limits. I traced the white road winding round the base of one mountain and vanishing in the gorge between two. How I longed to follow it farther. I recalled the time when I had travelled that very road in a coach, I remembered descending that hill at twilight. An age seemed to have elapsed since the day which brought me first to Lowood, and I had never quitted it since. My vacations had all been spent at school. Mrs. Reed had never sent for me to Gateshead. Neither she nor any of her family had ever been to visit me. I had no communication by letter or message with the outer world. School rules, school duties, school habits and notions, and voices, and faces, and phrases, and costumes, and preferences, and antipathies, such was what I knew of existence. And now I felt that it was not enough. I tired of the routine of eight years in one afternoon. I desired for liberty. For liberty, I gasped. For liberty, I uttered a prayer. It seemed scattered on the wind, then faintly blowing. I abandoned it and framed a humbler supplication for change, stimulus. That petition, too, seemed swept off into the vague space. Then, I said, half desperate, 
grant me at least a new servitude. Here, a bell ringing the hour of supper called me downstairs. I was not free to resume the interrupted chain of my reflections till bedtime. Even then, a teacher who occupied the same room with me kept me from the subject to which I longed to recur by a prolonged effusion of small talk. How I wished sleep would silence her. It seemed as if, could I but go back to the idea which had last entered my mind as I stood at the window, some inventive suggestion would rise for my relief. Miss Grice snored at last. She was a heavy Welsh woman, and till now her habitual nasal strains had never been regarded by me in any other light than as a nuisance. Tonight, I hailed the first deep notes with satisfaction. I was debarrassed of interruption. My half-effaced thought instantly revived. A new servitude. There is something in that, I soliloquized, mentally be it understood. I did not talk aloud. I know there is, because it does not sound too sweet. It is not like such words as liberty, excitement, enjoyment. Delightful sounds, truly, but no more than sounds for me. So hollow and fleeting that there is mere waste of time to listen to them. Servitude, that must be a matter of fact. Anyone may serve. I have served here eight years. Now all I want is to serve elsewhere. Can I not get so much of my own will? Is not the thing feasible? Yes, yes. The end is not so difficult. If I had only a brain active enough to ferret out the means of attaining it. I sat up in bed by way of arousing this said brain. It was a chilly night. I covered my shoulders with a shawl, and then I proceeded to think again with all my might. What do I want? A new place. In a new house, amongst new faces, under new circumstances. I want this because it is of no use wanting anything better. How do people get to a new place? They apply it to friends, I suppose. I have no friends. There are many others who have no friends who must look about for themselves and be their own helpers. What is their resource? I could not tell. Nothing answered me. I then ordered my brain to find a response, and quickly. It worked, and worked faster. I felt the pulses throb in my head 
and temples, but for nearly an hour it worked in chaos, and no result came from its efforts. Feverish with vain labor, I got up and took a turn in the room, undrew the curtain, noticed a star or two, shivered with cold, and again crept to bed. A kind fairy in my absence had surely dropped the required suggestion on my pillow, for as I lay down, it came quietly and naturally to my mind. Those who want situations advertise. You must advertise in the Herald. How? I know nothing about advertising. I thought to myself, replies rose, smooth and prompt now. You must enclose the advertisement and the money to pay for it under a cover directed to the editor of the Herald. You must put it, the first opportunity you have, into the post at Loughton. Answers must be addressed to J.E. at the post office there. You can go and inquire in about a week after you have sent your letter, if any are come, and act accordingly. This scheme I went over twice, thrice. It was then digested in my mind. I had it in a clear, practical form felt satisfied and fell asleep. With earliest day I was up, I had my advertisement written, enclosed and directed before the bell rang to rouse the school. It ran thus. A young lady accustomed to tuition, had I not been a teacher two years, is desirous of meeting with a situation in a private family where the children are under fourteen. I thought that as I was barely eighteen, it would not do to undertake the guidance of pupils nearer my own age. She's qualified to teach the usual branches of a good English education, together with French, drawing, and music. In those days, this now narrow catalogue of accomplishments would have been held tolerably comprehensive. Address J.E. Post Office, Loughton. This document remained locked in my drawer all day. After tea, I asked leave of the new superintendent to go to Loughton in order to perform some small commissions for myself and one or two of my fellow teachers. Permission was readily granted. I went. It was a walk of two miles, and the evening was wet, but the days were still long. I visited a shop or two, slipped the letter into the post office, and came back through heavy rain, with streaming garments, but with a relieved heart. The succeeding week seemed long. It 
came to an end at last, however, like all sublunary things, and once more towards the close of a pleasant autumn day, I found myself afoot on the road to Loughton. A picturesque track it was, by the way, lying along the side of the beck and through the sweetest curves of the dale. But that day I thought more of the letters that might or might not be awaiting me at the little burg where I was bound, then of the charms of tea and water. My ostensible errand on this occasion was to get measured for a pair of shoes, so I discharged that business first, and when it was done, I stepped across the clean and quiet little street from the shoemaker's to the post office. It was kept by an old dame who wore horn spectacles on her nose and black mittens on her hands. Are there any letters for J.E.? I asked. She peered at me over her spectacles, and then she opened a drawer and fumbled among its contents for a long time, so long that my hopes began to falter. At last, having held the document before her glasses, For nearly five minutes, she presented it across the counter, accompanying the act by another inquisitive and mistrustful glance. It was for J.E. Is there only one? I demanded. There are no more, said she, and I put it in my pocket and turned my face homeward. I could not open it then. Rules obliged me to be back by eight, and it was already half past seven. <laughs>